0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Adrian Goldberg's talk show, this time with Catherine Burblesing, one of the UK's most interesting and controversial head teachers. Catherine first came to prominence in 2010 when she addressed the Conservative Party conference. She said that the country's education system was broken. She cited an overload of bureaucracy and poor classroom discipline and said state schools kept poor people poor. Her outspokenness cost her her job as a deputy head. But now she runs her own secondary school, Michaela, in a converted office block close to Wembley Stadium. You'll hear the trains running past from the nearby tube station. Catherine took advantage of the reforms initiated by former Education Secretary Michael Gove to set up what is known as a free school. That means it's government-funded, but outside of local council control. Discipline is strict, and the school places a great emphasis on teaching children facts. It's seen by its supporters as an antidote to the progressive educational establishment. After opening in 2014, Michaela has recently posted its first GCSE results and they're among the most successful in the country for non-selective state schools. More than half the grades achieved, 54%, were at the new Level 7 or above. The average for comparable state schools is just 22%. Catherine, first thing to say is on the back of those results, congratulations.
1: Thanks very much.
0: So how have you achieved that in a non-selective school?
1: Well, I always say consistency is the thing that we get right. We keep our standards really high. And every classroom you go into, you will find children really engaged with their learning, hands are up, and they feel safe to answer questions. They won't feel like they're the nerd of the class. It isn't the... It isn't the children who are leading the learning or who are leading the disruption in the class. It's the teacher who is leading that classroom. And that that that's the important difference. And, of course, that happens in schools across the country. But what's important about Michaela is it happens in every
0: single classroom,
1: right? And I do think that it's the role of senior leadership to try and enable
0: that across the school. You are seen as a, a conservative with a small C in yeah. educational circles. What does that mean to you? Because it seems to me that discipline, consistency and content in lessons is a is a key part of your message.
1: Yeah. Uh, and also, you're absolutely right with all of that. Also, the idea of personal responsibility, uh, a sense of duty, the idea of behaving in an honourable fashion. Uh, all of these are small c conservative values. And... Uh, That doesn't mean, you know, I think there's a number of members of the big C conservative party who don't necessarily hold small C conservative values. And there are some people in the Labour Party who do hold small C conservative values. So it's not necessarily a political thing. I do think we've lost many of those values, not just in education, just in our society generally. We tend to concentrate on things being fair as opposed to well, what what's my responsibility in this? It's well, it's always well. What do you give me? What are you giving me? What's the state giving me? There's a sense of entitlement a lot, uh, in, not just in children but in adults in our country, I would say. And I and I find that on the right as well. It's not just on the left. It's it's everywhere. And that's that didn't used to be the case. You know, if you think about people who lived through the First World War, the Second World War, they were very different people to uh, what to all of us, including me. You know. And partly, oh, I don't know. I suppose it's because uh, in many ways things are much better for us in this country. You know, people can go on holiday to Spain. You know, ordinary people get on planes now, you know. Once upon a time, that was considered to be a total luxury. Even just eating meat was a luxury, right? Uh, and so many of us, uh, I, can, I think, can take for granted uh, the, the advantages and the luxuries that we've got in life. Um, One of the things that we teach the children here is to be grateful. And no matter how hard your life is, and some of our children's lives are really, really tough, but your life will be better than somebody else's. There's no question. (laughs) And so you must always see the the, the better things that are going on in your life because you'll be a happier person as a result. And, and a better person, I think, just a better human being. And and one of the things I'm always stressing when being interviewed and, and also to the children is that yes, we may have great GCSE results, but that's not the, the, the thing that I'm most proud of. And it's not the, the reason why you would want to send your child here. It, it's because uh, we think about the whole child and we think about the kinds of young adults they will become later on in life.
0: It is a fact of life though, isn't it, that some people are born with advantages other people are born with disadvantages and those advantages and disadvantages may be around race. They may be around class. Do you say to your children that those things don't matter?
1: We don't really talk about it. <laughs> really? So, yeah. I mean, look, we might talk about, I don't know, Rosa Parks and her life. Um, we might talk about the suffragettes and, and what they did we might talk about apartheid in South Africa and, you know, Nelson Mandela, but we wouldn't talk about life is really tough because you're black. Uh, life is tough because you've got a single mother.
0: Never. We would never mention that deliberately because... Although those things may well be true.
1: I believe they are true. <laughs> I believe they are true. But, but, but I also believe that um, if you spend all your time talking about that, then you will definitely never make it in life. You know, and as you've just said, people have different things that hold them back. I don't know. You could be a rich white guy, rich white straight, you know, not disabled white guy. (laughs) And and, um, I don't know, maybe your parents died when you were really young. Maybe something terrible happened to you when you were 15. Your best friend got killed in the street in front of you. I don't know. Any number of things could have happened to you. And so you don't know, you never know. The thing about race or or gender or or, or disability and so on is that you can see it and it's automatic. It's in front of you. And so people tend to just go with those disadvantages in life and they say, ah, you see, therefore you are disadvantaged. And um, it's so complex as well. It depends. You know, you're a young black boy who went to Eton It's slightly different from the young black boys who come to school here. And frankly, if you come to school at Michaela, you're pretty lucky actually. If you went to some other school somewhere, perhaps, that was in a much more difficult situation, perhaps wasn't, you know, didn't have our methods in terms of uh, teaching and discipline and so on. Well, actually, life's a lot tougher for you then. Maybe you're a young black boy who comes to Michaela and you've got both your parents there supporting you. Well, actually, it's not so tough for you. And that you might have a, a young white boy growing up somewhere else who's in a very chaotic school, whose dad isn't around, and he's on an estate, and yet everybody looks at him and says, well, he's white, and so life's really easy for him. And that's because it's about just the, the superficial. And people just aren't thinking very... They're not thinking deeply, and, and and they're being lazy, intellectually lazy is what I'd say.
0: But what you've described is a really interesting and fascinating philosophical conversation and, and a debate around education I'm I'm just surprised that I don't know whether it's because you lack confidence in your children or just because you don't want to encumber them with something that might hold them back but they should be talking about these things shouldn't they?
1: They do outside the building all the time that's all <laughs> they'll talk about uh, and it, it already holds them back enough and if you do, if that's all you ever talk about you just won't succeed in life because you you're convinced that the establishment is against you. You're convinced that no matter what you do, whatever GCSE results you get, the white man is going to keep you down. And that is, is not helpful to anybody. I don't need to talk to them about that stuff because they already know it inside out from all the conversations they'll be having with their friends and family. I I have the same opinion, say, about Stormzy and Mozart. I tweet a lot about this. We could teach them about Stormzy, but given that they know Stormzy inside out, why would we want to do that? We have a limited amount of uh, of curriculum time. Uh, I'd rather teach them about things they wouldn't otherwise come across. That's our role as teachers is to expose them to ideas and uh, writers and, and mathematical concepts that they wouldn't otherwise have come across if it weren't for us.
0: How important is your own personal background to that perception as, as someone, of I guess, of mixed heritage yourself?
1: Yeah, I suppose my parents brought me up in a very similar way. They didn't really talk about race much. They wanted desperately for us to have a, I say, us, my sister and me. I mean, um, they wanted us to have a chance at having a life where you're just not constantly talking about race, you know. Um, and I, I think that, that that was a good thing. I, I think that helped us. I do. Now that doesn't mean you don't want to know about race, and you w- don't. I'm not saying go through life thinking that there's no racism, because that would be stupid. Um, and you don't want to be stupid. As someone of an ethnic background, you need to know what you're dealing with, but that doesn't mean you become obsessed with it. You also have to be a bit of a duck, you know, have a duck's back about it. You know, like water off a duck's back is what I mean. You. you You can't be pulled down. I know, you know, Diane Abbott once was telling a story about how she was once, uh, when she was in school, you know, somebody, a teacher had said to her that her essay wasn't very good when actually it was excellent. And the I'm sure this did happen. The teacher was racist and the teacher didn't think she was that clever, even though she was clever. Absolutely, I'm not denying that that will have happened. There are all sorts of things that have happened in my life. But if you carry that around with you all your life and feel bitter about it, it's not. It's not good, you know. You just let it go. <laughs> I say to people, let these things go, not just to do with race, with anything, because if you're carrying that kind of that 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 anger,
0: it's just not good for your soul, you know. In terms of how that plays out, then in the classrooms here as well, one thing that I've read about you is this: this emphasis on teaching children content, on teaching them yeah. facts, rather than concepts of learning
1: okay well what you mean are skills so uh, it, it, it says the debate is between knowledge and skills do you give them lots of knowledge or do you say let's talk let's write an essay about whether or not you like your uniform and then you can come up with your own ideas and you can be creative that's the idea that you because you're trying to develop the skills of creativity but you know what they already have their own opinions about their uniform and that's fine. And they tend to hate their uniform. That, that That is what kids think. So you can get them to write an essay about how they hate their uniform, but you're not actually pushing the boat out there. You're not extending their learning. Whereas if you teach them a lot about King Lear... Um, then they know about King Lear, and then they can have an opinion about whether he was a good father or a bad father and, you know, whether Cordelia was a good daughter or a bad daughter and so on. Right. Um, but you have to give them that information. You have to analyze it with them because it's Shakespeare. So You need to teach them how to read the Shakespeare and understand the language and so on um that takes a lot of work behind the scenes in building up towards mastery now a child who gets that and who would definitely get it at eton or harrow or you know westminster or one of these top schools well, when they're then able to quote from various Shakespeare plays quite easily or, or make analogies between something that, you know, in a Shakespeare play with real life, and we say, gosh, aren't they clever? It's not that they're so clever. It's that they were taught it. Um, if, however, their equivalent in the state sector is writing essays about whether he or she likes their uniform because we're trying to develop this so-called skill of creativity, you're not being particularly creative. You're just writing a, an essay about how you hate your uniform.
0: I saw a notice outside advertising your sixth form and described you as a state school with a private school ethos. Is that what you mean then?
1: I suppose, although I have to say it's one of those things that you put on a sign, isn't it? I mean, I it's have to quite a to good say, tagline, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's why you've got it there. I have to say that the private schools these days are becoming more and more progressive, actually. And I would say we're probably more traditional than they are, especially in terms of our expectations of discipline. You know, sometimes I'm a little shocked when I visit private schools and I find boys or girls with their hands in their pockets while teaching to the, talking to their teachers. And I want to say, get your hands out of your pockets. <laughs> and I just think there's a sense of respect you've got to have. You take your hat off when you're teaching talking to your teacher. You take your hands out of your pockets. You stand up straight. And, you know, some people will say, well, who do you think you are? Why should children have to do that? They, they're just as worthy as you. And I sort of think, no, no, no. No, they're not, actually. I mean, that doesn't mean I don't like them. I love children, but they're children. And one day when they have worked really hard and passed lots of exams and and become a teacher, then they will be worthy of being able to stand there with their hands in their pockets. Although even then, I would say, wouldn't we all want to take our hands out of our pockets when we're talking to somebody? But, But as a child, no, no, we are an authority. And that concept of authority, again, small c conservative value, has been lost, I think, over the ages because we we feel bad. We think to ourselves, well, we're all equal. Well, that's not true. Children expect us to lead, right? And yes, black people and white people and disabled people, and all of them are equal, yes. But there's a difference between children and adults. And if we don't lead them, we are letting
0: them down. I've read that a key book in the development of your thinking about education was by E.D. Hirsch, The Schools We Need and Why We Don't Have Them. Was reading that a particular moment in your life or did it confirm beliefs that you already had and that you were coming into conflict with the education system here?
1: That's exactly what happened. So I had my ideas and I was complaining about it and somebody said, you really should read E.D. Hirsch. And it's not just that book. I mean, that was the first book I read, but then I've read several, several of his books since. And I mean, he really hits the nail on the head in terms of how teaching should happen in the classroom. And, you know, it was a great moment of... Of pride for me when I was in Amsterdam I think about a year ago and Edie Hirsch was there and I gave a talk to all these teachers about what should be happening in the classroom and what we should be doing in schools and I, you know, I came off the stage and he, you know, he's an old, he's 90 something years old now. He, he had a cane and he, he, he hobbled over to me and gave me a kiss on the cheek and said, you're wonderful, you know, and he was so thrilled. And I was telling him how much impact he has had, you know, in his lifetime across. Obviously, he's American and, you know, across uh, across countries in terms of the practice that that teachers do do in their classrooms. So thank goodness for, for him. He's, 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 he's a wonderful guy. And so you he's a te- Democrat. That's the other thing to be clear about. He's a Democrat, very much a Democrat. But he he, 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 he believes, which is why I say the small C conservative values don't necessarily belong to one polit- political party.
0: And you were teaching at the time when you read his book then. And, and were you kind of having to fight a battle in the schools that you were in to teach in, in your particular style.
1: No. You see, one of the issues um, in schools is that they don't have much consistency, right? Uh, And so, actually, if you teach in a school where you can close your door and just get on with it, uh, then there are lots of teachers in the country who do that. You can get away with being a traditional teacher because they just let you do what you want, especially if you're bringing out results. And I always brought out results. So I sort of managed to get away with what I was doing myself in my own classroom, Uh, It wasn't until I came here, really. Well, and I suppose in in a senior team level, deputy head and so on, I was able to introduce some of these ideas around discipline. So it's not that everybody is anti uh, these ideas. And certainly there are some of the big academy chains out there like Harris or ARC or Inspiration Trust. I mean, there's various ones that totally are on board with this kind of thinking. And they go around and they take over failing schools and they push in these types of ideas with the idea of improving them
0: and they do but you were conscious of being at war with the broader educational consensus in this country
1: yeah I've always been doing that and I'm certainly doing that a lot more now that when you're in your own classroom you just kind of get on with it and I used to write a blog called Dismiss with love and I would just quietly kind of complain you know anonymously and nobody had any idea that that's what I was doing you know they didn't know who I was now obviously I do it much more publicly and it does uh, it has impact because uh, I hear from teachers all of the time every day I hear from teachers from across the country and we have 10 teachers or so who visit here every single day who come and eat lunch with the children and it and it changes what they do in their classrooms and head Teachers come and it changes what they do across the across their school. So that is really exciting, being part of a movement that is is far bigger than just Michaela. But that, you know the difference between Michaela, perhaps, and elsewhere in those schools where they're making those changes, is that it's consistent across uh, across the school. So wherever you look, you will find a similar ethos uh, amongst all the staff, uh, amongst all the children.
0: You know, your teachers don't have the freedom that you enjoyed. You ensure right. that they yeah. that they teach to your particular standard
1: that's right a progressive teacher would not be happy here because they wouldn't it wouldn't be they wouldn't be able to teach here i mean they just wouldn't and so i'm always very clear when i'm hiring people look you need to put yourself in 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 the teacher's shoes here are you somebody who wants to teach the way we teach here because if you aren't you're not going to be happy here um but you're absolutely right i i i enjoyed a certain freedom before that that a progressive teacher would not enjoy here
0: i think a lot of teachers would enjoy one particular aspect of teaching here, which is the fact that, as I understand it, there's no marking, which which oh, is see. the bane of many a teacher's life. How does yeah, that well, come about?
1: We do mark, so and certainly more at Key Stage Four. they you know, like mock exams, we mark their assessments that happen twice a year. But what we don't do is bookmarking, and that can take up huge amounts of time from the teacher, and it can just be very boring. And in particular, what I would say is it can often not be particularly useful. It can be a tool to help build relationships with the children because when you stamp their books, that's a really nice feeling that the kids can go, oh, you know, look, my, I've got a gold star and they like that. But it depends. You spend a lot of time marking. Well, then what are you not doing while you're doing that marking? So we're always weighing up. Is what the staff are doing what we'd really like them to spend their time on, or would we rather that they spend their time planning lessons or spend time helping the children with their homework
0: or whatever it is? Is it true, then, that your teachers don't work after 5 p.m. at night? You know, they're not taking work home, they're not working at weekends? It depends on the teachers. I mean,
1: the more dedicated they are, the more they'll, they're going to work, really. Um, so it really does depend. They do. There is, I would say, if you want to be a really good teacher, see, it depends. If you want to be a really good teacher, you can be a really good teacher here and not kill yourself. I do think that elsewhere, certainly when I was a teacher, you know, 80-hour weeks were, were normal for me. Um, because in order to be excellent, you had to work constantly. And you, could, you were never accomplishing everything your to-do list was ongoing forever and you would never finish it whereas here you can you can feel satisfied that you've actually completed the job
0: you've been at pains to stress during the course of this conversation that the ideas that you believe in conservative with a small c are not owned by any one particular party or particular grouping but didn't you politicize it yourself by speaking at the conservative party conference in in 2010 at a time when education at a time when education felt highly politicized with the leadership of michael gove when he was education secretary
1: well, and he was a great education secretary. It was about Michael Gove. I know, lot, about I know
0: a lot of uh, teachers who might take issue with that.
1: Yeah, so it's not about the Conservative Party. It's about Michael Gove. He was a great education secretary, and he was doing all the right kinds of things. Um, and thank goodness for him. He really did wonderful things. I To give you an example, before Michael Gove, you could not give a child a detention without giving them 24-hour notice. So children like immediacy. They understand detention now. If you leave it to the next day, it's meaningless. So... There were no meaningful detentions happening in the entire, in the entire country. It was, it was madness. He stopped that from happening. And also, when children were given a detention, they would sort of say, you can't give me a detention. You've got to give me 24-hour notice. I mean, he was mad. He also made it so that we could search bags if we suspected a kid had a knife children were being bringing knives into school and you weren't allowed to search their bags people have forgotten right what things were like not only that but the progressive madness that was happening in uh, schools in terms of teaching there was no conversation around knowledge and skills there was no conversation about traditional discipline and so on it didn't happen it's only happened since 2010 thanks to what michael gove did and it's not just michael gove there's also nick gibb in the conservative party who has done amazing things with phonics and getting phonics taught we didn't used to teach phonics systematically across our primary schools. I mean, so we say it's not political, but actually the Conservative Party have, has done an am- amazing things in, in the last 10 years or so for, for education. Now, there were some good things that the Labour Party did before that. For one, Labour Party put in a huge amount of money into education, so that's really good. I'm not sure they did anything else that was great, because I have to say the ideas coming from the left in education are really appalling. They're awful. I'm not sure I can think of a single one. Well, I mean, they're all about making excuses for children. They don't like the idea of holding children to account or holding staff to account. They're very much, they like to say it's about a lack of money. The problem with schools is that they don't have enough money, which is why they're happy to put more money in. And I'm glad they're there because if they didn't put more money in, then we would be in trouble because money is a necessity. But it really isn't the only necessity. You can have enough money and still perform badly because you have a set of bad ideas. And those bad ideas, for the most part, not all, but for the most part, are coming from the left.
0: One thing that particularly interested me as a, as a father is your attack on smartphones and certain apps like Snapchat that you describe as evil. Yeah. Isn't that a bit yeah. OTT? No, not at all. In
1: fact, look, just yesterday I had a meeting with my heads of department and we were saying, well, what can we do with the homework for year 11? Don't know because all they do is use social media to copy everything from each other. So they actually have a WhatsApp group where they all just post. Somebody does the work, they post it on there, everybody else copies. So it's destroying children's life chances. And when you're a child from the inner city with a tough life, dad isn't necessarily around, you have a chaotic home, you may have four or five brothers or sisters, mom is working when you get home. Well, the the homework's on Snapchat or on Instagram or on uh, WhatsApp, sorry, those are the three that they use. Well, you're just going to grab that, aren't you? The, The temptation, they're children, right? They're ability to control their, to uh, to have impulse control, they don't have very much because they're children, right? And they will always try and take the easiest way out. Now, there's a few exceptions out there who might not do that. But generally speaking, human beings will take the easiest way out, let alone children who will always take the easiest way out. And that is what social media allows them to do. So they're not doing the work. The social media actually breaks their brains. I mean, there's all sorts of research on this. Uh, because Really breaks their brains? Yeah, Come on. It slows it down. And I actually have children who have told me this. So our kids who give up their smartphones tell me months later... I can think a lot more clearly. Is that not just like a fashionable moral panic around social no. media? I mean, my kids aren't being fashionable. In fact, they're, they look like idiots if they don't have smartphones. So when they're telling me that, it's their genuine experience. And as I say, there's all sorts of research done around this. Because when you read a book, there's a narrative arc that goes up and down. It takes a long time. If you you're you're on Snapchat, bing bing bing, you're constantly your your attention is being moved, so you don't have an attention span anymore. You're unable to concentrate for long periods of time. Then you have to sit down for your English GCSE paper and sit there for two and a half hours writing, and you can't do it, right? Parents don't realize just how much they're damaging their children by giving them smartphones. Because it's not just about the fact that they cannot, uh, they're breaking their brains and they're not doing their homework and they're going to fail the GCSEs. They then can meet all sorts of undesirables out there. Children who I know, I could tell you about them, who have got involved in gangs, girls who have gotten, you know, start dating men who are much older than them. Uh, all sorts of horrible things that I could describe. And so horrible, I, d-
0: I wouldn't describe, right? But isn't the intelligent response to that then, to educate your children, to say, look, you'll go on a smartphone, there are these dangers out there, you need to be aware of them, but I as a parent or I as an educator, I'm going to empower you with the skills you need to resist those bad temptations.
1: Sure. And would you do that with a five-year-old? You would think, oh, well, actually, the poor five-year-old... He's just not capable of understanding this. Same with a 16-year-old. Now, you're going to teach them that, but they are children, right? (laughs) They don't get it. (laughs) It, They will not be able to. There's a few, top percentage, who will. And there's a few kids here, voluntarily, they will give in their phones, and they say, yes, I get it, and I understand you, miss. There's a whole load of them who don't, right? They are children. And you don't say to your children, you know what? I'm going to give you some cigarettes, and I'm going to give you some alcohol, now I'm going to tell you it's really bad and I'm going to inform you with all the knowledge that you need. And then I'm going to leave you alone for a whole weekend with those cigarettes and that alcohol and f- see whether or not you come back on the Monday and you find that they're just still sat there not being used. I mean, come on, what's wrong with everybody? These are children.
0: And you believe that access to social media platforms, which currently is in theory limited to the age of 13, but very rarely is. You think that should actually be restricted to the age of 16? You should not be able to go on a social media platform till you're 16.
1: Yes, although, like you say, The age limits at the moment, nobody cares. So you've got 10-year-olds on Facebook and so on. I mean, nobody cares at all. And that's the the, the main point here isn't about legal requirements. It's about parents being more informed about the damage that this does to their children. No parent would say, here's some heroin, right? They just wouldn't do that, right? (laughs) Of course they wouldn't. I say this to my parents here, and they all laugh. And I say, yeah, but that's what you're doing when you give them a smartphone, right? They don't realize. And I say, find me the 13-year-old with a smartphone who doesn't look at porn, Right? They're all looking at porn. And then the parents look at me and go, really? And I say, well, what did you expect? You give them a device that has porn on it. Of course they're going to look at it. Come on. So, and part of the problem is it's a very new technology. The parents are nowhere near as tech savvy as their children. And so, of course, the children are running rings around them.
0: And am I right in thinking then you have a, a system here whereby parents bring their children's phones in and they have no smartphone throughout the week?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's not the parents, it's the kids. That's what I mean. You do try and talk to the kids. And some of them we get through to. So they'll drop it off on a Monday, pick it up on a Friday. But it's a small number of kids who are doing that, right? Some of them give it up entirely, especially in year 11. Some of them in September in year 11 say, OK, you know, take all my stuff. There's one boy, his mother listened to me because I, I gave parents evening and explained everything that I've just explained to you and in, in more detail. She took his Xbox, she took all everything and she gave it all. And she said, that's it, you're not having any more. And um, he came out with a string of eights and nines. There's no way that boy would have come out with eights and nines had he not had his mother not done that. And he's aware of that. And at the end, he said, thank you, Miss. You know, thank you for making my mother do that because I now have the opportunity to go to Oxford and Cambridge. He's coming to our sixth form. You know, if she hadn't done that for him, he would not be in our sixth form
0: now in September. Your exam results, as I've mentioned, right at the start of this conversation are exemplary. Is there a danger in a, a kind of very mixed and in parts very poor district like this, the area of Brent that you serve, that what you do is draw in the interested parents, the interested children, and and leave other schools to cope with the, the kids whose mums and dads aren't that bothered about how well they do at school, and the kids who themselves aren't that bothered about how well they do at school.
1: I only wish I had a whole lot of parents who were interested. In fact, our parents are dreadful. Um, I can't believe it. I'm I, just today. I'm always shouting about the fact. I say, who are these people? How can they treat their children so badly? I'm constantly shocked at the little the the, the level of interest that they have in their children. You know, I tell them not to buy them smartphones. I buy them smartphones. They can't be bothered. I cannot believe it. We have meetings for parents. They don't show up. I mean, I'm just honestly, I'm horrified. I'm horrified by our parent body. I really am, and I tell them this all the time. You know, I mean, I just i cannot believe how awful they are um the fact is that the system of admissions is such in brent but i think elsewhere as well that if you put the school down one to six uh you have as much chance of getting into the school as you would do if you put it first so there's loads of people who put Michaela first and they don't get in because somebody put it sixth gets in instead really yeah that's the system so, and if you put a school sixth, you don't really want to come here. So we have a whole load of pa- families here who don't actually want to be here. Right? So it just isn't the case that we've got a whole load of people who are 100% bought in because they didn't actually choose us.
0: You obviously enjoy talking about education. And you know, you've got a, a campaigning zeal about you, I'd mm. say, about education. Does your journey stop here? You know, trying to a very important job, trying to change the lives of the hundreds of kids who come here, or have you got ambitions, either on the political stage or elsewhere, to kind of promote these ideas?
1: Well, I certainly don't want to be a politician. I don't know why anybody would be a politician. I mean, then I'd have to toe the line of a party and I certainly wouldn't want to do that. Um, But we do have a school that we're hoping to open in Stevenage. Uh, So we've been approved by the DfE, which is really great news. And, uh, you know, in the next few years, we'll open a school there and some of the staff here will go there. And then I hope we would have a third school and a fourth school and a fifth school. I mean, I don't think we'd go much larger than six or seven schools. Yeah, that's the idea is just to have a few more schools. I really want to demonstrate that this isn't working just because I'm running it that actually anyone could run, well, not anyone, but someone who thinks in a similar way to me, but it doesn't have to be me who's running the school. So I would then just be the executive head and I kind of move amongst the schools. That would be the idea.
0: And that was my final question for you, really. Do you think that what you've achieved here with an intake that's very culturally mixed with you know pockets of poverty that you draw on for your student intake as well, do you think your success could be replicated at any school in any area in the country?
1: Yeah, but it's not just pockets of poverty. I mean, 40-something percent of our children... Oh, sorry. It's the... um, It's our pips for the lesson change over time. That's why. Yeah, 40-something percent of our children are uh, people premium, meaning free school meals equivalent. The fact is that we've got a lot of kids who are so-called officially poor, but then the rest of them are all inner-city kids. You know, I mean... How often do I not see fathers? Very often. You know, like this, this is the inner city. We've got gangs of kids outside who will come. One of our year 11s, this, you know, a couple months ago, took his exam, went outside the gates. Another, a lot of kids from another school rushed him and he got stabbed with a compass. We've got kids showing up on bikes with knives, wearing masks, waiting for our boys. Like it, this is the inner city, right? So if we can do it here, you can do it anywhere because we have a very tough intake. You could definitely do it anywhere. I mean, you know, you might want to change certain things depending on your intake, but I think we have demonstrated in the toughest place possible what, what you can do with a school.
0: Really appreciate your time, Catherine. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Adrian.